If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. We both believe firmly in Parliament's role of keeping the government accountable. This agreement maintains that critical function. This is not a a destination, but a starting point. And we're going to continue to fight. We're not going to let the Liberals off the hook. It's about focusing on what we agree on instead of what we disagree on. On what unites us instead of on what divides us. I got into politics to help people. And what we've been able to do is to use our power in this minority government to get help to people. Hey, it's Hamilton today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Wheeler Skin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Now that masking is no longer mandatory, it is important to respect the feelings of everyone, including those who now have the right to make a choice, whether to mask or not. Here's Scott Thompson! Sit down, son! That is such old news! Who the hell cares about that anymore? Oh, my, you can tell that was written last night. Oh, my goodness. Oh, oh my goodness. What a day this is going to be, and uh, what a time we are living in Canada. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think I started getting the, uh, the, uh, the, what do you call it, news alerts, breaking things, you know, all the big news outlets have them. This is what's happening. The NDP and the Liberals have merged. Film at 11. And uh, I, I just, I just giggled. I, I, I couldn't believe it, but I can believe it. I can, I can, of course. Oh, sorry. It's gonna be a long day. It's nine hundred chml. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Will Weber on the board and put that beautiful mashup together of uh, our new superheroes, uh, the new NDP Liberal government, and how they're going to save us. Great job, uh, Will, in the newsroom. Uh, of course, Dana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Uh, so anyway, uh, you know, I, I wasn't sure how to react to this because at, at, at first, my my first reaction is WTF. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and then I started laughing and, and, and I'm laughing because I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm on the radio and this is what I do for a living as a Canadian. I'm crying, uh, but as, as a broadcaster, this is radio gold and will be until the year 2025. And, uh, uh, again, I, I just go back and I'm, I'm running through in my head how we got to where we are. And we remember the liberals were in third place. They were in the third party status. And then uh, Mr. Uh, nice socks and, and, and selfie and, and sunny ways came in and boom, they took off. They were gone. Uh, you know, a nice big majority government for Justin Trudeau. And then he loses the majority to, of all people, Andrew Scheer, you know, uh, redneck from Alberta. Like, you're kidding me. Uh, the man who I had on our show, and the first question I asked him, is he going to uh, walk in the Pride Parade? No. And I'm, the first thing, I, well, <laughs> we might as well end this right now, because you have just lost the election. So uh, loses his majority to Andrew Scheer, then tries to call an election, or does, spending $660 million in the midst of a global pandemic to try to win his majority, his power. I want the big ring, Daddy. 
and uh, and and of course, and doesn't win it with Aaron O'Toole, who nobody knew that was. And then, of course, the conservatives who continually shoot themselves in the foot, which is the only reason any of this is even allowed to happen. Uh, now he greases up the NDP. Oh, my goodness, how far we have fallen. Can we not win uh, an election the good old-fashioned way? Uh, and we wake up this morning to a new NDP liberal government. And you can call it a coalition, which apparently officially it's not. You can call it a merger. You can call it a whatever you want. But at the end of the day, what it means is there are no more votes of confidence. And the NDP is going to prop this government up till 2025. So he has his majority. And he's very excited about it. He can tell he can barely contain himself under his Mr. Responsibility mask. And and but Jugmeet Singh looks like he saw a ghost. He looks like he just lost a member of the family. He looks like he just shat his pants. It's like he does not look good. He does not look like a a man who's sleeping comfortably at night, we'll say, uh, because he just sold his soul. And I'm watching a question period. And if you get a chance to watch this later in the day, because it's, 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 you know, the best part's come and gone. But oh my goodness, they even had the Speaker of the House laughing. It was such a circus. And the only one who was serious about the whole thing was JT himself. And the rest were just, everybody's, it, it was unbelievable. And then Jugmeet Singh starts to ask a question. Uh, like he's holding the government to account for, I don't know, I think it was half high gas prices or affordable housing or something. It's like, what? What are you talking about? And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised with JT because you know how I feel about him. And I've yet to find a political science professor that even loves the, you know, that may love the party, but does not speak well of his leadership. They're just not out there. So uh, he's happy because he's got what he wants. He's got the ball. Uh, Jugmeet Singh, I'm not sure. I, 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 I think they might pay a big price for this, and you can sell the Tommy Douglas stuff and the Jack Layton stuff, but I'm kind of d- disappointed in this guy because I always liked him as a leader. I've said that on the air. I just don't agree with his politics. Uh, but man, he has been visibly silent with the Ottawa protests and visibly silent with Ukraine. And now we all know why. Because apparently this has been going on since the end of the last election. When, uh, when, uh, uh our prime minister didn't get his majority. <laughs> so th- this was the plan. So, uh, fascinating time in Canadian politics. Maybe you're bored of it all. Maybe you don't care. I don't know. We're going to chat about it over the course of the day and see where this all ends up. But, uh, fascinating day in Canadian politics. We'll start off with Henry Jasek. Boy, what a fascinating day. And, you know, I, I guess on, on one hand, I'm not surprised. On the other, I, I, I am surprised. Um, but it does make me giggle a bit. And it's going to be fascinating to see who benefits from this moving forward. For his analysis, let's bring in one of our favorites henry jasek professor of political science at mac he's with us now henry thanks for the time hope you're well i'm doing very well and i'm right. surprised like you so you t- what are you thinking right now you just sit back and digest this well i mean i think you got it right i mean the person who really is the ha- happiest one here of course is the prime minister and uh so he can uh you know not have to put up with the, you know the constant uh you know uh 
attacks that he had to put up with the minority government. So it gives him some breathing room. Sure, you get a majority. You get a majority. We'll just have to see how it turns out for him. You you get a majority without an election. This is amazing. Well, you get, you know, the the basic principle, of course, in the House of Commons is whoever has the most votes and they they can come from anywhere. And if you have a majority of the votes, you can run the country. That's the system. <laughs> so uh, obviously, um, the prime minister is is smiling today. I watched the new. I've been watching this all morning, and Jugmeet Singh looks like he just saw a ghost. He looks very unconfident. He looks shy. He does not. He, he looks like his pants are full. What are your thoughts? What do you think is going through his head? Because again, I'm kind of disappointed in this guy. Because again, I, I don't necessarily agree with his politics, mm-hmm. but I think he's been a strong leader and, and, and a pretty good voice. But since Ottawa and then the Ukraine thing, he's been visibly silent. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I, I think certainly he probably looked at uh, the uh, the situation that happened in Ottawa and and at uh, and, you know at, at the crossings to the U.S. and uh, and also uh, for uh, you know the uh, Ukrainian situation. I think he probably figured this was not none of that would be a winning issue for him. So what he did is he just kept his mouth shut and just ignored that. Now, historically for the NDP, the medical issues, health issues have basically worked the best for them. And mm-hmm. so he was, uh, you know, so looking at it, he's saying, okay, uh, that's my strong suit. I'm going to, you know, push the, you know, push, push the uh, contract here and see if I can get more uh, health care and uh, will people reward us three years down the road. And that's what he did. I mean, we don't know what we, went on behind the scenes, clearly, because it's too early, uh, whether he was enthusiastic for this or there was other people in the uh, caucus who said, hey, or, and the party who say, hey, let's go for this. We don't want to be, you know, looking like, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're eating sour cherries for four years here and not getting any credit. So let's get credit for doing something. Do they not sit back and think, though, you know, let's be honest, uh, people were growing tired of this government. And if you and, and still there's a need for those on the left to have representation. Would this could this not have been the NDP's time after this? Because uh, people looking for an alternative and don't want the prime minister, but still want to go left. Yeah, oh, I agree with you. That that was the other strategy, and I thought that was the strategy they were going to follow. But uh, you know, uh, they they decided that they want to show that there's some accomplishment. I mean, there is a group in the NDP that believes that we have to that they have to show some that they're actually getting something done, even though they're the third party. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that that group prevailed, I think, in this decision. So it's going to be a while before we find out all the machinations that went on to do this. But I, I would assume there were people who were dissenting with this policy, but they were overruled. Uh, obviously, plenty of laughter to be had on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and as usual, the conservatives are standing there with their pants down trying to figure out uh, which end of the hammer to use. Yeah. Um, and, and so where, where does this leave them uh, as obvious without a leader and directionless? Well, now they have to recalculate uh, on what they want out of a leader. I mean, up yesterday, by, you know, uh, as late as yesterday, of course, they were thinking, okay, we've got to get a leader and there may be an election in a year or two. Remember, after the election, a lot of people speculated this is going to probably be, the, you know, Trudeau's probably only going to wait a year or two and have an election. Other people thought he was going to resign. I was always a little dubious of those. Uh, I, I thought he was, you know, he was in for a longer term than that. I mean, in terms of his ambition. And, uh, 
And uh, so, but the, the conservatives thought that they were going to have to fight a battle maybe uh, this year or next year in a general election. Now, they're gonna, now they have to look at the leader, various people running for the leadership and say, who's going to be the best leader for us three years from now? And so they got to recalculate, and it's not very clear who would be. But I think they have to—they have to, you know, center their their uh, their plan on three years from now, and not a year or two years from now. Uh, wh- where do you do you see this lasting all the way to twenty twenty five? Well, the thing is, they've made it public. It's going to be—I mean, if they either party backs down, I mean, that would be—you know—they would probably suffer a big consequence. I mean, because you have to—you know. When you go out there and say, this is the plan and I'm committed to it, you know, and if you don't follow through on that, you're going to get attacked. Uh, you're you're, you're going to look bad and you're going to lose, for sure, you're going to lose votes if you do that. So this, I think this puts both of them, you know, both parties, the liberals and the NDP, you know, they've got to live up to what they've done. Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. I'm sure we'll chat again on this, Henry. Take, uh, take it easy and be well. Okay, you too as well, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, the the uh, situation in Ukraine continues. The Russian invasion of we're into day 27 now, uh, and with this, obviously, uh, people are taking uh, sides, picking allies. We've certainly seen the conversations going on between Russia and China. Uh, there was chatter uh, a few weeks ago about Russia supporting, or sorry, China supporting Russia in. In some sort of way and you know at the at the end of the day with russia holding europe pretty much hostage hostage as far as energy there's been lots of chatter about another cold war we remember back in the day uh, of reagan and gorbachev you know tear down this wall and such many thought we had moved on uh now we're talking about it all over again and campbell clark chief political writer for the globe and mail has uh, an article and the headline is a global economic cold war is coming and campbell clark is with us now. Campbell, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. A difference between the old days of a Cold War and this one. What is this? Well, <laughs> it's still developing. Let's hope that uh, it is not a global hot war. Um, but, you know, it certainly is uh, the redevelopment of a Cold War with Russia. And the point I was writing about there is it could also become a global economic war if China is brought into it because. In this day and age, the world's economy is really interrelated, and China is a big part of it. We remember very much 20, 30 years ago, uh, China was the golden goose, uh, free trade, global village, global economics, uh, supply chains, uh, you know, uh, in and out every day, uh, less self-reliant. How has that discussion changed, not only with this conflict, but even post-pandemic? Yeah, so... You know, with the rise of the Chinese economy and the sort of, you know, the level of trade between China, the United States, the European Union, all the countries of the world, you know, those economies are interdependent now. And we can see the sort of impact of that when Joe Biden threatened uh, China that if they entered or if they helped Russia in their invasion of Ukraine, if they sent them material, war material and weapons that you know, there'd be consequences for China, which we all presume would be sanctions, and that those sanctions could be, you know, big and bad and broad, like the ones leveled against Russia. And if you imagine that for a moment, that would be a dramatic thing for the global economy. You think about the supply chain issues that happened during the pandemic, and, you know, they're still occurring and they're spiking inflation. Imagine if there was a 
dramatic cutoff of Chinese exports to the rest of the world. That'd be bad for China, but it'd also be bad for the rest of the world. There'd be uh, you know, a spiking of inflation because of the su- supply chains. Uh, stock markets would probably crash. Trade would slow. There'd probably be a global recession. In other words, if we cut each other off quickly, and by each other I mean the West and China, it would be pretty disastrous for everyone. And so you would expect that that's something that the United States and China would try to avoid. And I guess what I was writing about was, well, now we've seen sanctions leveled against Russia in a way that they've never been leveled before, uh, you know, with a breadth uh, against a country that large. Once we've seen that happen, every other major economy in the world is going to say, one day this could happen to us and we're going to have to protect against that. In particular, China. They're going to say to themselves, we've seen the way the West deals with conflict through economic measures, and they'll probably try to insulate themselves against it. In fact, they're already starting, and they're probably going to accelerate that. Uh, So is it not in best interest of the economy to sanction others, or does this make us more self-reliant? Does this convince convince us that we need to to do more in-house and less reliant on others? Well, I think uh, I think the latter is, is is inevitable now. You know, global trade is good for the global economy. I mean, in strict terms, there are always winners and losers. But you know, the more trade, the more exchanges. Generally speaking, mm-hmm. the more growth in the global economy. So we've taken that to be a good thing, right? But there are not, there's now such interdependence that we're ex- exposed to each other, and if we have yeah. conflict, that that can lead to a problem. As we say, you know, Russia has suffered from its interrelationships, economic interrelationships being cut off. China wouldn't want that. And, you know, the Western world probably wishes that it could use economic measures against China or pull back from China without it causing, you know, devastation for Western economies. So what we see happening is what's called decoupling. And in China, it means, you know, trying to develop energy security and food security and security of some supplies. In the United States, it means trying to uh, exclude China from technological infrastructure, you know, uh, excluding Huawei, for example, from 5G Mm -hmm. networks or high tech, so that we're not exposed, so that key points of our economy are not exposed to a potential adversary. And those are things that are just getting warmed up now. And if you imagine that sort of moving on, the idea that you can't have technological trade between these two blocks or three blocks, if we're talking about the Europeans, that could really change our economic future. You know, um, I raised an example of the, Canada wants to develop a, an artificial intelligence industry. There's lots of companies in the field, but imagine if they can't sell to the burgeoning Chinese market in the future. That's a real possibility now. You know, the idea that trade in all goods will be or in most goods will be continue to roll on well maybe we're going to see that revisited and that probably will have big impacts on the global economy in the coming years did we let economics get in the way of policy did we let economics get in the way of the politics to do blinders on here the economics are the politics to a large extent. And look, there's a really good side to economic exchanges, right? Because yeah. countries are less likely to go to war if they depend on each other's economies. You know, they don't want to uh, necessarily ruin everything. Uh, and, you know, it does encourage cooperation. 
but you know, there is certainly the feeling now with China, for example, that uh, you know we expanded trade, that it didn't lead to the change in their political system, and that they now have as many levers or more over us and mm-hmm. in the West than we have over them. And I think a lot of people are showing signs of regret about that. And Russia is, you know, a similar example, the warming of relations between Europe and Russia after the Cold War, and in particular between Germany and Russia, led to a lot of expanded energy trade and, you know, natural gas pipelines that feed most of the German energy market so that it's not easy for European countries to stop trade with Russia after they invade Ukraine because that turns off the gas. Campbell Clark with us, chief political writer for the Globe and Mail, talking about a looming Cold War in the new world that we are now uh, living in. Campbell, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Uh, initially called Ian to talk about the Canadian Pacific uh, Railway strike and them going back, but I have a feeling we might get sidetracked. Ian, good to talk to you. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well. Thank you, Scott. Before we get started and, and talk about the obvious with Canadian Pacific, uh, your thoughts on the merger of the NDP and the Liberal governments here, uh, whatever they want to call it, and what this means for the business community. Um, I, th- I call it a strategic alliance, but that's probably just a quibble. That's what we call this in uh, business schools, you know, uh, strategic alliance, joint venture, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but, um, but quite seriously, um, you know, from the Liberal point of view, the Liberal Party point of view, I, I, I can understand why they did it. They wanted mm-hmm. security, stability, as he said. So they know that um, and, and their benefit is that they can plan with more uh, assurance that there won't be a snap election. Um, the only benefit that I can see that's going to accrue to the NDP is, is that they are going to be protected against the uh, snap election and they're they don't have a lot of money, you know, right now. And um, so they're uh, as a consequence, they um, th- they have to watch and husband their resources. And uh, so that, you know, that's the only benefit. I think there's a big risk to the NDP because the benefits are going to accrue. Any benefits from this are going to accrue to the prime minister and the Liberal Party. Yeah. But um, but if it fails or if something, one of these policies become very controversial, uh, the NDP will get blamed. So I see it as much more beneficial to the Liberals than to the to the NDP. At the end of the day, it means the for the most part the minority is gone. There will be no more votes of confidence. The NDP will side with the Liberals, and this effectively becomes uh, a majority from them or for them, and and for them hoping to be twenty twenty five. Your thoughts of a minority government becoming a majority for the next three years? Well, what it's going to do because of the the uh, uh, the apparent commitments that they've made, they're all social spending and they're big ticket social spending. Um, the the dental care is going to be extended to uh, families making under ninety thousand, which I I think that's about the forty percent of the population. I didn't have time to look it up yet, but it's about the bottom two quintiles. So it's not going to be a, a, a small change program. And if they roll it out, if they also include uh, pharmacare, universal pharmacare. The PBO has estimated that it's between 25 and $40 billion a year uh, because we already have uh, pharmacare in Canada, 10 provincial pharmacares that cover 42% of all prescription drugs. 
And so Universal Pharmacare extends free drugs to high-income people like senior public servants and professors and, and people like that. So it's very expensive. So to your question about the, uh, the impact on the business community, it certainly, I think, points to higher taxes coming uh, down the road. And indeed, there's a suggestion that they will put um, a, a surtax on banks and NDP are demanding it on oil companies and big box stores, um, you know, such as the Best Buys and Walmarts and that sort of thing. Uh, by talking about pharmacare and dental care, does that take away from the discussion of fixing health care? Because I'm thinking, you know, when health care started, it was half and half from the federal and provincial governments and everything was hunky dory. And then, you know, now it's less than 25% from the federal government. What's it like? Why would we not expect the same thing to happen with pharmacare, child care or dental care, whatever? Well, I, I do agree with you. You know, I mean, uh, Pierre Trudeau famously used to say years ago when he was prime minister, he said to govern is to choose. In other words, you have to make tough choices because, as he said, governments can't do everything, you know, all at once. They, they can't. There's there's finite resources. And and so, you know, unless we think that um, uh, providing free drugs to high income Canadians is more important than uh, beefing up the uh, overall healthcare system, I'm not one of those, obviously. Um, you know, they, it seems to me to be a misprioritization. Uh, I mean, surely I think, and public opinion polls show that the number one issue, and when it comes to healthcare writ large, is the access to public health care. We have queuing across the country. Uh, we have queuing in almost every area of health care. And so these these are uh, almost distractions. Okay, I understand the logic of, of the, the dental care, but there's no justification at all for giving free drugs to high-income people. Um, uh, there just isn't. And, and universal pharmacare means giving free drugs to people in the top uh, quintiles, the higher uh, range of the, from the rich to the upper middle class. And, and that's going to squander scarce resources that could be invested in public health care for which there is enormous support year after year in public opinion polls. All right, only got less than a minute left. CP, the strike is over. I think you predicted a very short strike. Yes. Any interruption, any fallout, or is this the way it should work? This is the way it should work. I think, uh, give credit to Seamus O'Regan, the Minister of Labor. I think he privately read the Riot Act uh, to both parties and said, either you settle or uh, or come up with an agreement to get back to work or we're going to legislate you back to work. I am absolutely certain his advisors, they've got the data. They know that every transportation strike in this country since 1950 has been legislated back to work. Lickety split. I mean, not two, three weeks later. How about two, three days later? And I think that he told them either you get back to work really quickly or we are going to legislate you back to work and you may not like what we legislate. And that's why they suddenly were able to, uh, for when they couldn't even discuss before or agree on anything, they suddenly agreed to going back to work with a binding uh, arbitration um, to settle the, the disputes. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, hitting everything today. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. Larry DeAnne, former mayor of Hamilton and my favorite liberal, is joining us, and I promise I will let him speak now. Larry, how are you? <laughs> You, you never keep your promises. You always, always have the last word because you got the mic. <laughs> so, come fine. on, Larry. You, you can't be proud. You can't be happy with your party now. Give us your thoughts. Go ahead. Well, so, first of all, I, I have to say that for those who keep underestimating Justin Trudeau and, you know, saying that he's not smart, he's not clever, he's not his father and all of that stuff, 
He's proven proving to be a master strategist. I mean, who saw this coming? So is a um, fox in a hen house. Well, let me put it this way. You know, for those um, conservatives uh, like uh, uh, sometimes you express that point of view and, and others who are saying, you know, he's trying to cling to power. Well, that's what the game is all about. You know, yep. every party is trying to get power. And if you've got power, you try to maintain it. Now, you try to maintain it by, you know, doing the things that you think are good and responsible. But for the conservatives who wailed last election about elections and how unnecessary and expensive they are, we've got some political stability for the next three <laughs> years. That is not a bad thing, I don't think. Oh, so don't even get me started on the... Con- so don't get me started on the conserv- Don't get me started on the conservatives, Larry. I mean, every time they're needed, it seems their pants are down and they're looking at what end of the hammer to try to use. I mean, my God, uh, would you think any of this would be happening if we had any kind of consistent conservative opposition? And let's be honest, they're they're failing miserably here. They are, and that's a whole different topic. I think they should have kept O'Toole. Um, frankly, I think. Uh, he w- his instincts were right in terms of tacking towards the middle because that's where the uh, that's where the power is. Uh, so in terms of strategy, uh, let, let me be fair about this. In terms of strategy, I think that Justin uh, Trudeau and the Liberals have pulled off a master stroke. Uh, Jagmeet Singh um, has has gained a seat at the table, as it were, the policy table, and and maybe he deserves some credit for that. In terms of policy, I mean, this is a government that's been. Uh, not only operating on the left side of uh, the political spectrum, he's going even more left now, and that'll have implications, fiscal implications. That's a whole different. Uh, that's a whole different topic. But in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, outwitting the the conservatives, um, this this has been a good day. If you're a, a liberal, if you're center left, um, and. Uh, and we'll see what happens over the next few years. It's not taking much to outsmart the conservatives these days, Larry. Uh, uh, so are you concerned that this party is moving too far left? Because obviously the old days, the conservatives were right of center, the, the liberals were left of center, and then the NDP extreme. Uh, are, are you worried that, that Justin Trudeau is taking this party too far to the left? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, but I would I would reframe the statement you made. I think the conservatives were center right, the liberals were center and the NDP were center left. Um, clearly, the prime minister feels that in terms of policies, um, they need to be center left as well, because they, you know, they were being chewed at by by the left side. And, and you know, facts have proven them correct. I mean, both parties, uh, the liberals and conservatives, Certainly, when you tally the popular vote together and you tally the number of seats, they're always in the majority of uh, where Canadians uh, place their X. Uh, but in terms of the, the fiscal nature of this, and my goodness, you know, the worst thing that can happen uh, to this country is that we get uh, pharmacare or that we get uh, dental care. Those are not bad things to have. The question is, how yeah, but you know, I think it. a lot of us, Larry, would rather get our health care system fixed. We remember when it started; it used to be fifty-fifty for the governments and the provinces. Now we're, you know, uh, out there selling uh, a daycare, we're selling pharmacare, we're selling dental care, and that's all great. We're all behind that. But you know, why is that not going to be this exact same screw up that health care is, which we've all seen the weak links during uh, a global pandemic? Should we not be focused on that instead of once again distracting from it for more election promises to get elected? 
Well, let's put it this way. Dental care is health care. Uh, if you know the, uh, the uh, impact of uh, poor uh, oral care on general health, you'll Yeah, but if nobody can get it, Larry, it doesn't work. We need to fix the system, don't you think, Larry? Well, I think we need to have a good system all around. There's no question. And, you know, right now, um, you know, the drum beats are beating about spending money on, uh, on our military to improve that as well. We need to have everything, quite frankly, but a government needs to triage. They need to manage the fiscal uh, realities that we have to, to give us uh, a, a, as good a quality of life as we possibly can have. And they've made the, cal- the political calculation. We'll see if it works out. Uh, that uh, that improving health care uh, by providing uh, better pharma care and and dental care is is the way to go. Personally, as a as a a liberal, a centrist uh, a liberal, and, and maybe a little bit of a a blue liberal in terms of needing to pay our bills, I'm concerned uh, about that going forward as well. But the slash and burn on the right uh, and putting money um, in in areas that don't benefit social programs or the extreme left that just wants to throw money at social programs is not the way to go either. So I think, I think, uh, you know, we'll have to see how they navigate this over the next number of years, but they've bought themselves some political stability. And, you know, this is not brand new. Uh, BC did, did that. The NDP government did that with the Greens. They, they formed a coalition until uh, Premier Horgan uh, called a snap election and Ontario did that generations ago uh, after 40 years of conservative rule. The NDP Many, many are saying we are going backwards here, Larry. i got to cut you off here, and of course I get, I get the last word, unfortunately. Larry, I wish I had an hour with you to talk about this. He's my favorite liberal, Larry DeAnne, former mayor of Hamilton. Thank you, sir. Be well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I want to take a quick call from Tony, a listener, and their thoughts on this. Uh, Tony, what are your thoughts on this merger? I, uh, I'm kind of liking a, a, a minority government. As an NDP uh a number of years, uh, I remember back in the uh, 40s when NDP were called communists uh, because, <laughs> because they were trying to join uh, join a party or get a party started here. So for you, Tony, for you, Tony, the fact that they've got a little bit of say, that's good. I like that because uh, if, if they didn't have any, this is the only way that the NDP are going to be able to get any influence on the uh, sitting government is by having a minority government and then they can kind of uh, dicker and, and, and back and forth to get something for the people. All right, Tony, I'm going to have to cut you off there. Uh, it totally makes sense. This gives the NDP a voice now. Uh, and, well, you know, minority government, it's really not now. It's a majority government because everything that gets voted on now goes through, of course, now with a huge NDP influence. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Alyssa Freeman here. Uh, Your thoughts on this, Alyssa, when you first heard of it. Wow, that was my first thought. (laughs) Me too, me too. I mean, really, what an incredible savvy uh, move. And just what an incredible, horrible, awful year the Conservatives are having so far. Yeah, yeah. I really just think that they were outplayed with this one. They were sitting back on their heels. I mean, they they may not even been sitting back on their heels, Scott, but they've certainly been preoccupied. 
And they may have known that this was going on. There may have been rumblings. I mean, I don't think there's any real secrets, quite honestly, um, in Ottawa. But when you wake up this morning and you hear that Trudeau has made this deal, I mean, this is really something to be studied. That here is a party that has basically secured their power by making a strong alliance with another party that will basically have their backs until 2025. So if you talk about getting stuff done, they're going to get it done. And I think that the caller that just called in, Tony, I think that he had a really good point. I mean, there are people who do like some NDP policies, Mm -hmm. but they're kind of NDP light. They would never vote NDP. But there are some things about it that they do agree with. And I think that that may be the case here. Now, listen, I've already talked to some of my conservative friends. They're already screaming about higher taxes because people are going to get dental care. But my goodness, is it a problem that people have good teeth? So, uh, you know, I, you know, as far as the conservatives, they the conservatives have only themselves to blame for any of this. So, you know, it looks good on them. And yes, it was a very savvy political play, just like a fox in a hen house. But let's be honest here. Does this make you feel any better about our prime minister and the governing party? We've gone from a majority to a minority with Andrew Scheer. Are you kidding me? And then try to get the minority or majority during a global pandemic, spent six hundred million dollars, still comes up with a minority. Now. I still can't get my leadership, my majority back, so I'm going to make a deal with the NDP. Yes, politically savvy. What does it do for the brand? Well, I think that that remains to be seen, Scott. I, th- I think that, first of all, it is politically savvy. you got to sit back and think, huh, that was a really smart move. You may not like completely like uh, Trudeau. You may not like all of his policies, but you have to say that he doesn't, didn't sit around thinking, well, how am I going to push anything through, any uh, uh, of those important um, party platforms through, if I've got to fight tooth and nail and worry about what's coming at me from the left flank? And now he doesn't. So here you have the conservatives who are already gearing up for another um, leadership convention, another one, and it's kind of a big who cares moment. So for the next three years, they're sort of sitting back on their heels, listening to everything go on. And all they can do is stand up, scream and sit down. And what was interesting was is that Candace Bergen has been on obviously all day. And so the one thing that the conservatives had to do today, which she is doing and she is doing well, is trying to frame the narrative of what Canadians woke up to this morning. So she's calling it an NDP liberal government. And that's not something that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. That was that's a pretty brilliant play, too, isn't it? I agree, but let's just yeah. see how well it lands. And I think that it's landing very squarely with me. <laughs> I think you it's know? hilarious. But I, I, you know, I think, and you, you, you are absolutely right in giving all the credit to the liberals for this strategic play, and and rightly so, uh, thrashing the conservatives for them being just an absolute mess, not knowing what side of the hammer to even use. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure this is what Canadians want. I'm not sure it's what they voted for, and I'm dying to know what this is all going, how this is all going to land uh, one year, two year, three years from now. Well, I think it's be, it'd be interesting to do baseline polling, and I'm certainly hoping that some third party group does do that so we can get the reaction now and we can look at it one and two years down the road. So do I think that Canadians um, are aghast? I don't think that they are. I think some of them are surprised um, from what I'm seeing right now and you know, looking at Twitter and looking at some of the streeters on the news. People are thinking, OK, well, it's not that bad. But I also think that Canadians are tired, Scott. 
Mm. I think that they're tired of COVID and I think they're tired of political infighting. And I don't even think they want to turn on the news because of all the horrors going on uh, half a world away. Is so, this is this is this the only way for Justin Trudeau to have got his majority? And what does this mean for Anita Anand and Christia Freeland? Well, he says he's going to run again, and no I way. put money down that I don't think he will. I think that no way. No, I, I don't think that he can. I think that he secured his future and hopefully a legacy um, for his sake up until 2025. But then I think that he really has to pay attention to um, where the party is going and who should be leading the party at that time. Three years is a lifetime in politics. Yeah. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, talking about the news of the day, uh, the Liberals and NDP coming together and uh, and staying together for the next three years. We'll see how that goes. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Bob, what's on your mind? Scott, thank you for letting me uh, voice my opinion here. Well, what I got on my mind is plain and simple. The NDP has crossed the floor, become part of the Liberal Party, and therefore they forfeit all the monies they receive as an opposition party because they're part of the ruling party as the Liberals. Yeah. That's That's a very interesting point, Bob. Uh, and again, one of the many questions. We certainly know what everybody's telling us it isn't, but we really don't know what it is. Uh, thanks for the call, Bob. Much appreciated. All right, let's bring in Dan Muse, Conservative Member of Parliament for Flamborough Glanbrook. Get his uh, his take on all of this and, uh, and and whether he was surprised or not. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. Doing well. How is this being digested in the Conservative Party today? Well, I mean, it's a little bit of a surprise. Last night we heard uh, rumblings of the, the secret backroom deal going on between uh, the NDP and Liberals, and uh, more was revealed today. And I look forward to seeing uh, Graham McKay's cartoon that you referred to in The Spectator tomorrow, because he's always brilliant at this. But this, this is uh, nothing more than a power grab by Justin Trudeau. Uh, he didn't achieve the result he wanted uh, in, in by calling an election last summer in the middle of the fourth wave of pandemic. And so he's achieved it through a, a backroom deal. And, um, and uh, you know, this isn't, this is not what Canadians voted for. Uh, 68% of Canadians did not vote for this. They didn't vote for an NDP uh, liberal government. And that's what they're, they've got today. But, but the real question that we're asking is, what is this going to cost Canadians? You know, what, what, was, what was part of that deal? Uh, we know already inflation is you know, officially at 30-year high, but we know, if anyone goes to the grocery store recently and uh, knows it's probably higher than the 5.7% that's officially on record. Uh, the NDP have just now signed on to tax increases with the Liberals. So on, on April 1st, the end of next week, uh, there's a 25% tax uh, increase uh, of the carbon tax on gas. And we already know gas is at record prices and people are struggling to, to, to pay that as they commute back to work. And, uh, you know, other taxes go up on April 1st. So they've signed on to this. So, so what does this mean for, for uh, taxpayers? What does this mean for the economy? And there are a lot of questions. And, and this is not the way to have uh, transparency and accountability where those things can be asked. This, this is a backroom deal. 
I would suggest, Dan, that, that people who are upset with what is going on are also equally upset with the lack of uh, opposition, the lack of a conservative party, the, the lack of any kind of direction or unification within the party. Many saying it's in shambles. Uh, many saying that this wouldn't even have happened if you guys had your act in order. So can you point it all to them? I mean, has the conservative party done their part in any of this? We ask in, in question period every single day about these tax increases, about inflation, about the housing crisis. In fact, as soon as I've done this interview, I've got to go ask why why housing is, is the most expensive it's ever been in the city of Hamilton. How on earth people can afford to, to, to buy a house and participate in the rental market? So we ask those questions every single day. Obviously, we've got a leadership campaign going on and uh, there are eight candidates running and we'll have a leader by fall and uh, I, we'll, we're going to be united and rally behind that leader. But, but throughout the, all of the debates that have taken place in the last month, uh, all, of, uh, all of the uh, things that uh, the Trudeau government has put forward, we've, we've been there asking questions day in and day out, and we're not getting answers. Uh, are, are, uh, what would you say to those people who are waiting for the Conservatives to provide an alternative option? Well, in the last election, we we ran on a platform that was 163 pages long. We we put that out on the very first day of the campaign, and uh, you know it was chock full of ideas. In fact, one of those ideas was a GST tax holiday. Uh, in fact, we proposed that today as our opposition motion uh, because. You know, let's let's ha- let's ease the GST for for a little bit as people are struggling with inflation, as they're struggling with gas prices. So, you know, we 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 presented all sorts of ideas in the last election. The new leader will obviously come forward with a new platform, but but we've we've also put forward uh, motions in this past month on uh, ending uh, federal mandates. Uh, we've seen that at the provincial level, not at the federal level, and 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 other countries around the world. We've put forward uh, motions on uh, the situation in Ukraine and and uh, promoting an, uh, Canadian LNG so we can get uh, Canadian natural gas to Europe uh, instead of using uh, Canadian dollars to fuel Putin's uh, war machine. So, so we're active on all those things. Dan Muse with us, Conservative Member of Parliament for Flamborough, Glambrook, getting a different perspective from the merger between the NDP and the Liberals. Uh, and many saying, uh, if the Conservatives had their act together, this may not have never happened. Uh, Dan, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. We both believe firmly in Parliament's role of keeping the government accountable. This agreement maintains that critical function. We'll continue to engage in healthy debate with each other and disagree on things, just like we'll also continue working with other parties in the House of Commons to reach consensus and make progress together. This is what working together constructively is all about. Talking earlier at his news conference about the deal between the NDP and the Liberals, a new NDP Liberal majority uh, that uh, is now the way that Canada is being governed. What does that mean for our military? What does that mean for uh, what obviously has been in the headlines for the last, uh, well, certainly, uh, what, 20 some odd days, 27 days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that is how much or how little we spend or help NATO. Uh, will this change any of that? Uh, let's talk about that in some other other, um, I guess, um, uh, weaknesses we have in our protection. Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
Good afternoon, Scott. It's my pleasure. It's a nice sunny day. Are you concerned, Christian, uh, with this new, um, um, I don't know what to call it, merger between the NDP and the Liberals? And, and how do you think that will affect spending on our military, which has really been brought to our attention, like many inefficiencies or, or our ability to, to rely on others over the course of a pandemic or this uh, conflict? How is this, what does this mean for NATO or the military? Well, I think the first thing it means that the government's own fiscal guardrails that it has laid out are probably completely out the window now because, I mean, uh, if there's no strategy to actually grow the economy, that means the government is going to be financing all this on more debts. So that means there's going to be more fiscal pressure and that means there's going to be even less opportunity to spend on other things because this is increasingly becoming a zero-sum game. It's also surprising that the prime minister i think would make this sort of announcement literally two days before he goes to nato and has to defend canada's um extremely um uh, harmed reputation within nato because of how little canada has been able to do and is doing uh, in the current ukrainian conflict canada paid it forward substantially with its contribution to the enhanced forward presence uh, by nato in latvia as well as operation unifier and training um ukrainian troops since 2015. Uh, but of course, when the conflict happened, the cupboards were bare and there was very little that Canada could do extra. And our European allies and Washington have definitely taken notice. Uh, and I think uh, it will come as somewhat to a surprise to them that uh, pharmacare is a bigger priority than the defense of the alliance uh, two days before um, before this key NATO meeting. At the same time, it might be good news in the sense that if we have a reinvestment in defense by this government, it means that we do have some stability uh, and that hopefully we can get the sort of predictability that defense and defense spending and defense commitments need and that they have lacked under governments from both sides of the aisle over the last 15, 20 years because we really have not had an international policy per se and we haven't had a strategy. And so maybe this is also... a sign that the government is looking for some stability precisely so that it can actually devise a strategy and implement a strategy, although there's no sign on the horizon of any such thing when it comes to our international policy. Do you expect uh, in Brussels the Prime Minister will announce something in regard to the military or NATO? Um, I, it will be an opportunity for the Prime Minister, I think, to make the case to Canadians that a reinvestment is absolutely necessary, not only in light of the Ukrainian conflict, but also in light of the fact that as the Europeans become more independent and autonomous, as they have in the, independent on their than they have in the last three decades, and the Europeans realizing that um, there might be some precarity in who might hold presidential office a couple of years from now, so that there might be they have to be even more reliant on themselves. This is a very high risk proposition for Canada because Canada is already a discretionary ally. And at the level of spending and lack of strategy that we have on our international policy, Canada is going from a discretionary ally to an irrelevant ally. And when Canada was pressed on the contributions that it would make, whether it would be in making good on sanctions, whether it would be on contributing to European energy security or on providing more assets to, uh, um, to uh, securing uh, the flank, um, especially the northeastern flank, uh, on the recent trip by the Prime 
prime minister to Europe, he continuously dodged the question. So I'm not sure that uh, there's really any vision, any leadership or any courage. Um, and uh, I think that's deeply regrettable because it means that uh, Canada is going to find itself very lonely and frozen out of allied decision making, which means that Canada will not have the leverage to assert its international interests the way it has over recent decades within NATO and uh, and allies are noticing. Uh, speaking about free, being frozen out, let's talk about the Arctic. Uh, Melanie Jolie, our foreign affairs minister, said recently, we're not a military power. Uh, we're good at convenience. She seemed to backtrack that after a while. There's now, obviously, uh, members of parliament being warned about the aging uh, systems uh, to detect uh, threats to North America, including Russia, uh, over the Arctic. Uh, what are your thoughts on the comments the foreign, uh, foreign affairs minister had to say? Yeah, I think those were perhaps unfortunate remarks. Of course, when we're a G7 country, we're one of the world's major economies and we're a significant contributor to NATO to, to claim that we somehow are not a military power, I think uh, shows a certain degree of ignorance that uh, the military ultimately is a key instrument, maybe the key instrument of Canadian foreign policy. Uh, and so if you don't have capabilities, you can't make commitments, you don't have the ability to signal to adversaries or to allies, for that matter, what your interests are. And so saying that we're not a military power basically means that we're prepared to relinquish our national interests and especially our national security and defense interests when it comes to the Arctic, precisely at a time when the Arctic is a serious area of contestation, not just by Russia, but also by China uh, and where all of our other um, uh, both NATO member allies, as well as, for instance, uh, in particular, the United States are significantly reinvesting uh, in Arctic capabilities. So, again, I mean, we live in a democracy. Governments can make those decisions, but it means that Canada will not have an ability to assert its interests when it comes to the Arctic. And it is clearly signal that Canada uh, doesn't have an interest in being an Arctic player and is basically leaving that geostrategic space um, to the Americans, to the Russians, and to other Arctic countries to contest. And of course, let's remember, we have contesting claims with the United States when it comes to the Arctic. So it means that we're basically relinquishing those claims and basically letting the Americans mm. assert their claims over our own. Christian Leprac, Professor, Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the Macdonald laurier Institute. Always fascinating. Thanks for the time, Christian. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Talk again soon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. He is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Well, I'd be doing well, Scott. I mean, I thought the world would be all right now that the two wills are back in, in action. But <laughs> uh, the deals throw me off for, for it. So even the power of will times two cannot uh, change the news of today, I suspect. Well, if you can't win another election and after a couple of tries you haven't got your majority, you might as well make a deal to somehow get to the same spot. What were your thoughts when you heard all of this? Uh, well, it broke last night, as you know, and it was um, sort of surprising. I say sort of because you'll remember just after the election there was some talk that the Liberals and the NDP would work together in different capacities uh, to pass different pieces of legislation, but I don't think anybody envisioned anything like this, and then all of that got quiet 
because of everything that transpired between uh, the convoy and the war in the Ukraine. And then, uh, then lo and behold, this morning we woke up and were told this was all true. Uh, in some respects, it's, uh, you know, it's a fairly, it's a historic arrangement. I don't think we've ever had anything like this, at least in recent memory at the federal level. Now, now we see the salesmanship on one side and the uh, salesmanship on the other saying that this is not the way to go, not legitimate. And uh, here here we go, Scott. Put the seatbelts on. Who does this benefit most? Uh, well, uh, politically, in the short term, I guess you'd say the, the, you know, the liberals would appear and, and the NDP to have a bit of a bump. Uh, they certainly view it as that, uh, that they have a historic arrangement to pass um, some key pieces of legislation for legislative priorities that are in common of, of both parties. Um, that's today. As this goes forward, you know, it, 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 the, the puck could move around a little bit here. Um, if elements of either the Liberals or the NDP decide they don't like this deal, they could make a lot of noise and uh, make it very uncomfortable for the, the two signatories of the deal and the two leaders of the party. In the short-term, Conservatives, as you heard, through Candace Bergen, very frustrated, feel that uh, this is going to be hugely expensive and costly, particularly to the resource sector and everything else. They also may feel a little bit cheated that they now have potentially have to wait for three years for an election, but they play their cards right over time. They may be the big winners in this if this thing unravels and the objectives and the goals set out by the Liberals and the NDP can't be achieved or not achieved to the level of expectation that Canadians would like. As much as I kind of roll my eyes and laugh at about where we are today, I have absolutely no sympathy for the conservatives who just continually shoot themselves in the foot and try to figure out which side of the or which end of the hammer uh, to use. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I who cares what the conservatives think? Uh, they can't even get their own crap together. So, would this have happened yeah. if the conservatives did have their act together? Um, well, again, there's so many, there's so many uh, things in there that, uh, I guess you have to look at had they gone differently. If Aaron O'Toole stays leader, does this happen knowing the elements of this would have happened? Does this happen if the convoy happens? Does it happen if Trudeau, um, doesn't have some of the troubles that he had around the convoy? Who knows? I mean, that's, uh, th- that could be three hours of great spitball going through it. What, none of that matters now. I think what matters now is it's here. And what is it really going to mean, uh, both in terms of policy achievement? Look, the things they're talking about, there's nothing wrong with having pharmacare. There's nothing wrong with mm-hmm. having dental care paid for. But all of these things come at cost. So what are they going to cost? What's going to get traded off? What's going to suffer? What's going to benefit? What's the burden going to be for Canadian taxpayers over time? Because you can't just spend money, no matter how laudable a project or an idea is. And are any of these things ever going to be conceived in such a way that they're effective? I think the Prime Minister is in a very legacy mindset. Um, Along with child care, he wants to add some of these elements and move forward on climate change. 
Um, so he's rolled the dice, to use a Mulroney metaphor, which Mulroney did on Meech Lake, and we know that didn't work. Uh, are the dice gonna, is the dice roll going to blow back on him here? Who knows? And the other thing I'd say, Scott, is you know this whole notion that this is going to carry forward to 2025. Well, look at all that's happened in the last three months. I can't imagine this thing holds together until 2025. This is not like a deal in B.C. between the Greens and the NDP. There are more moving parts here. We have long expected Justin Trudeau to step out. Maybe he stays a little bit longer, but if there, if he steps out before 2025, it's hard to imagine a new leader of the Liberal Party continuing with this particular program because he or she is going to want to define themselves in a different way. At the end of the day, this all sounds good, and we all, saw, we all know how Trudeau goes in and steals all the stuff out of uh, Jagmeet Singh's uh, grocery uh, cart at, before every election, but by the time he gets to the counter, he never pays for it. He just leaves it there. So will any no, you of and this... I for it. <laughs> exactly. So will any of this ever get done, or is this just a selfish way for the, you know him to get his, his majority back? Yeah, so these things that look, Pharmacare has been talked about as long as child care has, and we're just getting things done on child care. That took 30 years, but there were more concerted efforts to get things done on that. The provinces have to come forward on, on Pharmacare and, and, and agree to how you deal with it. And there's more passing the buck. There's more passing the buck just yep. like health care that we saw the weak links during the pandemic. Why are we trying to work so hard for Pharmacare and, and whatever to, to win the next election as opposed to really addressing the situation, which is all the shortfalls we saw with uh, Medicare during in the broader uh, system. Yeah. And then, yeah. of course, don't forget, you t- I'm sure you've talked about it already this week or last week. You have the Minister of National Defense rightly saying, we need to spend 2% of our GDP uh, to off yeah. our military. So how can we do that? How can we do this? Continue to fund child care. Uh, address all of the other. The, 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 there's a lot of money that needs to be spent and is acknowledged will be spent on uh, reparations around indigenous relations and, and, and the things we need to assume responsibilities for there. I mean, I hope when people digest this, they sit back and say, all right, this is all great, but... I mean, you know, if you remember, I think you and I talked about it, the NDP platform, um, new expenditures in that platform were something like $200 million. (laughs) (laughs) Where's the money coming from? So so do you think Justin Trudeau will face another election since he's lost the last no. two, per se, or will the much smarter and uh, much more intelligent Anita Anand or Christia Freeland take his place? Or Mark Carney, or Francis yes. Philip Champagne. Yeah, I, I think there'll be a new liberal leader. I don't, maybe Trudeau stays a little longer to get some of these things done, so he can say, "Look, you know, like Tommy, if Tommy Douglas got Medicare, I got childcare, and I got pharmacare. Does he want a legacy like that? Entirely possible. He may. You know, I, my thinking was always, as you know, that he'd probably step off around Christmas of this year. Maybe he stays a little longer uh, to get some of these things done, but I, I don't see him leaving the Liberal Party in 2025. That's why I don't see this agreement holding till 2025. Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Scott Radley joining us now. Graham McKay had an excellent cartoon. I don't know if it's appearing today or tomorrow uh, with uh, uh, it was Trudeau. It's Trudeau and Jugmeet Singh leaning over a warboard. And it is quite funny. I hardly recommend you uh, check it out today or tomorrow. Scott, how are you doing? I am. Uh, I'm fine. I am uh, trying to uh, stash away a few extra pennies because uh, in anticipation of our inevitable massive tax increases that are coming. But other than that, doing okay. What are your thoughts on this? Because man, this is this is amazes me. Is is and and you know at first I'm going what the hell, and then after you kind of kind of laugh about it, unless you're a taxpayer. Um, but you know, a guy that went took a third party with his socks and his selfies up to first place gets a majority, then loses his majority to Andrew Shear of all people, and then uh, tries for another majority during a global pandemic, spends spend six hundred million bucks to again end up the same place with Aaron O'Toole, who nobody really knew. And, you know, if you can't win a couple of elections and get your majority back, I guess you just uh, make a deal with with the opposition and arrange it all to happen uh, for you anyway without any election. It's great to have a majority without an election. Well, okay, a couple things. First of all, totally legal. Uh, no one's complaining about doing the legality of this. The, but I think, you're, I think you're wrong about one thing, which is about Trudeau being the leader of a majority government. Justin Trudeau, at this point, is not the Prime Minister. Jugmeet Singh is the majority Prime Minister because now the Liberals have to do everything that was on the NDP's platform. We have two Prime Ministers now. We we have two Prime Ministers now. We don't need need Christia Freeland as a deputy. We got Jugmeet Singh. This is an NDP government. And and, and the part about this that I think is going to drive a lot of people crazy is that I don't even look it up yet. What percentage of the Canadian public, not just the voting public, of the Canadian public voted NDP in the last election? But they now have know. a majority NDP government for all intents and purposes. Yeah, yeah. And what we've got now, and Scott, where, what I started with about the taxes, here's the part about it that, that gets me upset today. And I, I'm being honest about this. Our taxes are going to be going up. It's inevitable. Anyone who says otherwise is either hopelessly optimistic or totally out of touch. When you start talking about tens of billions of dollars in new annual programs for pharmacare and dental coverage and this and that and the other, and winding down our fossil fuel industry that we need now, um, we're going to be seeing this. So you've now got all these politicians who have wildly handsome salaries, who vote themselves raises every year so they stay ahead of the inflation curve, who have drivers or can get taxis or Ubers or whatever paid for, none of these inflationary things affect the politicians who are voting on this one iota. And mm-hmm. if they retire, they've got a gold-plated pension with all their benefits. This, wow. this does not touch them at all. And so here's what I think. And no, this, this, is, this is pie in the sky. This will never happen. If they can vote on what we're going to have to pay in taxes, I think we should ask that on the next ballot, we get to vote on what their salaries are going to be. If they can tell us that we're going to pay, we should be able to tell what they're going to get. Because you know, right now they are speaking from a position that they have no skin in the game here. None. No. None. No. And no. yet all the things that we're going to be seeing with all these 
wildly expensive new programs are all going to add to the inflationary pressures and the taxes that we are facing. It is, to me, it's the wrong time for this kind of thing when we're looking at generational inflation and the, the, the private sector and everything else struggling because of what we've just gone through. It's the absolute wrong time, and yet we're going to see the largest, other than COVID, other than CERB and stuff, we're going to see the largest expansion in federal spending maybe ever. Um, uh, Jugmeet Singh didn't look very proud today. I thought that he looked very coy, very shy. He looked like he'd seen a ghost. He didn't look like he was convinced this was the way to go. He looked like he had filled his pants. So hmm. at the end of the day, um, how does he how does he square the circle? How does he justify this? I guess it does give oh, them think, some I power. Think, no, I think he's gotten everything he wanted. I, I think the person who should be wondering what their purpose is is Justin Trudeau right now because yeah. what if you are now fulfilling an NDP platform what is the purpose of the Liberal Party uh, do you think he will run in another election since he's not been able to get a majority in the last two or do you think he should bow out and make room for the much more intelligent and um, and enlightening Christia Freeland or Anita Anand uh, I think that he will probably be gone, and I'll say why I think that, and it stems from what we've found out in the last little while. I do believe, and you can take this down, and I could be wrong or I could be right, but I do believe that what happened today will ensure that the Conservatives win the next federal election, because I think enough people... For the next 15 years, Scott! What's that? For the next 15 years, they'll be in after this. Well, maybe, maybe, but I think that when people, when this starts to hit home when the taxes and the cost of living and everything else hits home and people realize they didn't vote for this they wanted parties yeah. to work together that's why they voted for a minority but they didn't want a signed sealed delivered you can do anything you want i don't believe that people voted for that i think when the when the finances begin to really register with people if the conservatives are smart and if they focus exclusively on the economy and not on all the other peripheral things I think this will ensure that the Conservatives win the next election. I do. And again, you know, I have absolutely no uh, love loss for the Conservatives today. Uh, you know, they're, they are where they are because of their own stupidity and their own inability to make things happen. I mean, they can't even figure out which end of the hammer to use. So, uh, you know, tough darts for the Conservatives. They've got some work to do. Uh, Scott Radley coming up next. Why. Yeah, absolutely. Host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your and Hamilton Spectator. And so he's going to pass the torch to someone to get obliterated. It won't be on him. <laughs> That's a good point. All right. This will continue. You guarantee it after the 6 o'clock news. Thank you, Scott. Be well. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave uh, for bringing it all together and for you uh, for uh, calling us and, of course, sending in your emails. All right. We are going to, as we always do, leave it to you, the taxpaying customer for the last word. As an NDPer, uh, a number of years, uh, I remember back in the uh, 40s when NDP were called communists. I like that because this is the only way that the NDP are going to be able to get any influence on the uh, sitting government is by having a minority government and then they can kind of dicker and, and back and forth to get something for the people.
Or you could just win your own election. Nighty night. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.